0: Well, it's been a rough week for me. I found myself standing at the bedside of my unsaved stepdad, holding his hand, and uh, talking to him about the only hope, the only hope that we have, just four days ago. And uh, I stood there next to my unsaved mom, and shared the gospel yet again, and urged this man uh, to throw himself on the mercy of God. Because I knew that it was the only thing that I could possibly bring to them at that moment that would matter. And uh, it's with a heavy heart and with a huge pit in my stomach that I reflect on that time, even as he is still fighting for his life today. And uh, I just want to tell you that this passage and this study is not that. Because praise God, it does not have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way for you and it doesn't have to be that way for me. And I trust that for most of us here, it will not be that way the day that, or the week that we pass from this life to the next. Because God was not silent. He spoke to us through his son who lived a perfect life for us. And through the agonizing and yet completely effective death of his son in our place, you and I have hope. We will never be without hope and we will never be without hope. And help, excuse me, because of that one thing. So today's study is different. And because of that, you and I will never face a day like that in the ICU. The Apostle Paul has some great news for us today, especially for those of us who are mourning a Christian loved one who has gone before us. Jesus is gonna tell us today that he has them safe in his hands. He's taking care of them and someday he's gonna bring them back to pick us up. That's the truth of this passage, plain and simple. And because of that, no real follower of Christ could ever live without hope. Let's see what he has to teach us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the details about that great day that he comes to take us with him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These are some power-packed verses. These are some verses that will help us face the inevitable and painful loss of those that we love who know Christ and do it well. Because aside from losing a non-Christian loved one, losing a Christian one is the next worst thing on the planet. I don't care if it's your mom or your dad, your brother, or your sister, your son, your daughter, your husband, your friend. It's the worst. It's like having a hole blast into your life. And no matter how long you've been a Christian, it take, takes months to adjust to life without them. One godly man who lost his grown son said it like this. He said the struggle was to bring my faith and my emotions together. My hope is that this study today and the time we spend will take you one step closer for your faith and your emotions to be united with hope in Christ. Because death is inevitable. We all know it's coming. All of us will actually probably face the loss of a Christian loved one as well. It is inevitable. But a living, breathing follower of Christ can experience good grief. Because we have hope. Verse 13 begins, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you understand that he doesn't want people not to get it. But this is more than that. It's not just he wants to give them information. He's trying to tell them what comes next is super important, listen up, okay? Paul already told them that Jesus was coming back, but they seem to have a question about it. Uh, In verse 13, he's telling them, I don't want you to be in the dark, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The Thessalonians' concern seems to be for Christians in their church that have died, while they're all waiting for the second coming of Christ. They're worried about these people. They're wondering what's gonna happen with them. They're wondering what will happen to them. Will they miss out at the return of Christ? Will they be at some disadvantage compared to the people that are actually living when he shows up? I mean, what's going on with them? Are they going to be okay? They love these people and they want to make sure everything is going to be all right. And don't let the word sleep throw you. Both pagans and Christians through the centuries have described people who are dead as asleep because from our perspective, that's what it looks like. Our loved one's body or shell looks like it's asleep. But people have understood for eons that something else, that spirit, that soul lives somewhere else when they're gone. And uh, in fact, it's all over your Bibles. You probably didn't notice it, but it was right there in the DBR last week. In Genesis 35, when Rachel died in childbirth, when she was having Benjamin, the Bible says this little thing. It says her soul was departing because she was dying. That's way back in Genesis 35. This idea of a conscious existence after death um, is, like I said, all over the Bible, but one of the places is Lazarus and the rich man, the parable that Jesus spoke. Lazarus is the beggar, and yet... He's dead in this parable, and we notice he's having a conscious existence with God, and it's good. Well, the rich man has a conscious existence that is full of discomfort. Or how about Paul in Philippians 1.23? He says that he would rather die and be with Christ, but he would gladly stay and serve the Philippians. Our spirit being dead, or excuse me, our spirit being alive after our body is dead could never be more clear than when Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, right? They knew, I mean, they were being crucified. They knew that their body was going to be dead or asleep very soon, in a matter of hours. But he said, you're gonna be alive with me. As D.L. Moody once said, you've heard Mike say this before, as D.L. Moody once said, one day you will hear that D.L. Moody of Northfield, Mass., is dead. Don't you believe it? I will be more alive on that day than I ever was before. Then in verse 13, Paul actually gives us the purpose for the entire passage that we're going to study. You know, Paul is a pastor at heart, and he doesn't just want to give them information. He actually wants to love them and care for them. So he gives them the purpose here. When a Christian dies, I don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. That's the purpose of this whole thing. I'm gonna tell you what happens to Christians who die so you don't grieve like that. Everyone understands that the death of a loved one is excruciating. Everybody gets it, Christian and non-Christian alike. It's at that moment that you physically hurt. And you think to yourself, how's that possible? I mean, my body's okay, but it physically hurts. Grief can be profound like that. We all understand how painful that can be. Some of you have experienced in your own bodies what that profound grief feels like. Paul is not saying here, don't be sad. death is horrible it's horrific it's never what God intended it was never his plan death came into the world because sin came into the world and death through sin and then it says later that the wages of sin or the consequences of sin is death that's why we have it in our existence and it was never part of his plan and it's never what God wanted but it now is part of our existence literally so he can bring us back to him to a perfect place. Paul doesn't expect Christians not to be upset. You shouldn't expect Christians not to be upset who lose loved ones. What he's prohibiting here is grieving with hopelessness. Whatever Paul is gonna say next here as he describes this whole thing, he's saying it so that we won't despair like everybody else does when death comes to their house. Just like being a Christian changes your words and your actions and your motives and your attitudes and your destiny, it should also change your response to death. You should be different than the non-Christian person who loses the same person you did. There should be a qualitative difference in the way you grieve, We have the punchline, we're not supposed to grieve without hope, so let's just put the point down. When a Christian loses someone you love, you should, point number one, let hope govern your grief. Let hope govern your grief. So what is hope? I keep using that word. It's our title this year. What is hope? Hope is the confident expectation of good. The confident expectation of good. How can I have a confident expectation of good when my life has just been blown apart? Paul's gonna tell us, starting in verse 14. because Jesus Christ died and rose again. That's why. That's why we grieve different than those who don't know him. Even in the face of death of someone we love, it's that most well-attested to historical event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that makes us grieve different. And because Jesus rose from the dead, We will too. That truth is all over your Bible, but one place is 1 Corinthians 5.20. It says, Christ was raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if he's the first fruits, if there is a first, that implies there's going to be a second, a third, a 400th, a 12 millionth. If he's the first to be resurrected, there will be more. And in the case of Christians, There will be many more. Our resurrection is as sure as his, ladies. That's why we have hope. Jesus promised in John 14, 19, yet a little while and the world will see me no longer, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. This text clearly says Jesus is coming back and he's gonna bring all the dead Christians with him and we're gonna be reunited and taken back to heaven. So no Christian will be missing. And if you really think about what he says here, if Jesus is bringing back the dead Christians, then they're at no disadvantage at all, right? They've already seen Christ face to face. They've been hanging out with him. They're the ones who get to come back and pick us up. So who's the one at the disadvantage here? Us, those who are left behind, not those who have gone ahead. We're gonna be like the freshman class and the upperclassmen are welcoming us in on that day. We can be assured that even death will not sever our relationship with the Christians that have gone before us. No, we don't see them now. But for Christians, it's really never goodbye, it's always see you later. For Christians, it's never really goodbye, it's always see you later. No matter how long that see you later lasts and how much it stings, it will someday end. Jesus promised it to us right here. Because of that, our sadness has to be measured. It's measured because of our promised resurrection and their promised resurrection. And Paul further cements this truth that dead Christians are gonna be fine and we're gonna see them again because he says in verse 15, Jesus told me this. This is a teaching of Jesus himself. Now, we don't recognize that, we think, wait, I'm looking at my gospel writings, I don't see this saying from Jesus, it's not there. But in John 21, it says that many things Jesus said were not recorded. Plus, the fact that Paul has been getting revelation from Christ, he says that in various places. There's a few places in the book of 1 Corinthians where he talks about things that the Lord told him. So don't let that throw you, this comes from Christ. Christians that die won't be left out. And Paul wrote this so that Christians who are here won't be overly distraught as they wait. Of course there's gonna be grief. Many in this room are still reeling from it because like I said, death is horrible. And it is horrific and insensitive if we tell people they can't cry or grieve over their lost Christian loved ones. Of course they should. Even Jesus wept at the death of a friend And Paul said, oh, I'm so thankful that God spared Epaphras because I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. I'm so grateful that he didn't take him. It's appropriate to be sad. In fact, sometimes we're even instructed to be sad. We're told to weep with those who weep in Romans. We'll get back to that in the third point. So Paul says, don't grieve like non-Christians. That means there should be a difference, and if we can't see one, we need to start focusing on truths like this and fighting for that. We should make it our goal to have hope in our grief every day. Make it your goal. Seek it. Fight for it. Doesn't mean you'll always succeed, but make it your goal to grieve with hope every day. And when you don't succeed, get up and try again. And remember that you never fight alone. God said he would walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. But he also said so many other wonderful things in his word, including his promise in Isaiah 41.10, when he says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. As one great pastor said, when we are grieving, we just need to borrow some of his strength. Borrow some of his strength. I love that. Well, our hopefulness contrasted with the world's hopelessness was probably never more apparent than it was on the tombstones in the first century, The pagans' tombstones were full of misery and despair, while the Christians' tombstones in the catacombs were full of hope and they were full of, speaking of a bright future with Christ, with his people. And it was rooted in the truth that Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is coming back, and everything he said is true. Their tombstones were rooted in truth. Truth like what we're teaching today Paul practically shouted it in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, and he said, oh death, where is your sting? Because he trusted that the resurrection was coming and that one day the separation we experience from God and his people will end. I vividly remember the day that I was told that my daughter would most certainly die. And I remember these medical professionals and extended family members trying to help us. They were no help at all. But I also vividly remember the rock solid assurance from God that he was in charge and he would never leave us. So even when the pain felt like I was being shredded from the inside, I knew that it was no excuse to cash in my holiness or my hopefulness. Um, It was not a time for us to do or say things that would dishonor God just because we were told to. It wasn't the time to end her life on this anniversary of Roe versus Wade, because it would, you know, we just don't want to extend the inevitable, so you might as well just spare her. Which is quite the juxtaposition. Um, We were not able to do anything like that. We couldn't even imagine it. Because... (laughs) In the face of death is actually a time to show a watching world what it is to have hope. Hope beyond this life, hope for a day when I would see her again. Yeah, it's not the day to cash it in, even though the world said I had a right to. I had to grieve with hope. I had to remember that God loved me, even on those first days when I think all I can remember doing is crying, um, that he loved me more than the birds of the air and more than the flowers of the field. And he was going to get me through this and he was going to give me the strength and he was going to let me borrow some of his. Praise God she didn't have other parents. But when you're grieving, that's a time to show a watching world who you hope in. But how do we really do this? Some of you are here and yeah, you're in the throes of the intense, my heart is ripping out of my chest pain. I already mentioned one way, every day you make hope your goal. When you get up in the morning, you make hope your goal and you fight for it. You fight for it all day long. You immerse yourself in the word of God. Immerse yourself, let it pour over you continually. You cry out to God and you lean on his presence. And you hunker down for the long haul with the people in this room. And tomorrow you get up and you put one foot in front of the other. That might be all you can do. You put one foot in front of the other today, tomorrow, and the next day and you do what God asks you to do right now. You look to the day that Paul is talking about here and you start to pray with a passion you've never had before, come Lord Jesus. And eventually you start looking around and at people like my stepdad and you think there's others who need to know about this who don't have hope. Who can I tell that Jesus is my hope? And who can I strengthen and come around that's grieving too? That other day needs to motivate us today to live with hope. That other day that Paul is speaking of here. Well, Paul's got more motivation to act like people with hope as he describes the events of that day. This is the good part. In verse 16 and 17, Paul says, "'For the Lord himself will descend from heaven "'with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, "'and the sound of the trumpet of God, "'and the dead in Christ will rise first, "'and then we who are alive, who are left, "'will be caught up together with them in the clouds "'to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Our motivation to have hope comes from the details that he's laying out right here. We call it the rapture. It's that whole concept of being caught up. Caught up, that's the rapture. When he comes back for us and he catches us all up together. Paul is pumping you up here. He's getting you ready to number two, anticipate your eternal home. Anticipate your eternal home. There is no greater thing to get your heart wrapped up in than this day. So let's look at the particulars starting in verse 16 and we're gonna go as fast as we can here. There's a bunch of little pieces. Verse 16, the Lord himself would descend from heaven. It's not Paul and Silas, it's not Elijah and Abraham. No, it's Jesus. He's the bridegroom and he's showing up for you. This is your first moment. This is your first moment you'll ever see him face to face. Some of you have been serving him for decades. This is the moment you see him. He's coming back for you. This is exciting. It says he's gonna come down from heaven because when he died and rose again, he went back to live in the Father's house. He sat down at the right hand of God when he had paid for our sins and he is interceding for us now and he is eagerly awaiting God to say, time to go, Let's, you're off. He's sitting there waiting for this moment. I I got the privilege of seeing that kind of joyful anticipation up close and personal a couple times recently. Because two summers ago, I got that seat right there. I got that seat right there as my oldest son, Matthew, stood right here and watched his bride walk down that aisle. And as I looked at his face, the bridegroom, and I saw the sense of peace and rightness that washed over him as he looked down the aisle and saw Karina's beautiful face. It's a moment that I will never forget. And then some of you might know, I got the chance to do it again. Because my second born John, I got that same seat. And I watched him, the bridegroom, looking down the aisle at lovely Alexandra. And if you were here, he could hardly contain his joy, right, as he was joined with her in marriage. Well, those two young men are pretty excited. I'm here to tell you, Jesus is even more eager to see us than those two young men. He is bubbling over in his excitement to come back when the father says, it's time to go, go get your bride. It's time to go. He's counting the minutes if there is such a thing in heaven. He's coming down to get his bride and whisk us off to the reception, also known as the marriage supper of the lamb. First Corinthians, excuse me, Thessalonians, that's what we're studying. Chapter four continues. He will descend with a cry of command. A cry is a loud shout. It's what a military officer would do to his troops or a charioteer's forces. It's an order. It's heard and responded to the world over. With this one command, Jesus is gonna bring together every Christian on earth, every Christian under the earth, every Christian in the sea, every Christian who is scattered to the four winds. Every Christian will hear this command and step forward. He will be talking to the Christian who's been dead for one hour and the one who's been dead for hundreds of years. Thousands upon thousands of Christians will gather. It will be the one time, the first time, we will ever all be together in one place. From every place, from every land, from every time. Dead or alive, we will all be gathered in that moment. John 5.25 describes it like this. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour's coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. This rapture is not done in a back alley. It's something everybody's gonna know about. Jesus has been patiently waiting for everyone to get saved and at just the right moment, he's gonna call us out. Verse 16 goes on to say, there's gonna be a voice of an archangel. Angels are a fixture at his second comings. In various places in the Bible, one is Mark 838, which I won't take time to read. If the archangel is here, he's the guy in charge of the angels. This is important. Then it says, There'll be a sound of the trumpet of God. Trumpets have always been important. They've signaled a military action, a celebration, a call to God. They used them at Jericho. Nehemiah used them when they defended the walls. Moses used them when he called them to Sinai, and now one's going to call us home. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and there will be now a loud cry, the archangel's voice, and a trumpet. The rapture is going to be announced in a way that no one can miss it. And now for the main event. The dead in Christ will rise first. First Thessalonians four says. The dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them. This is when we get our resurrected bodies. But this passage doesn't say anything about them, so I'm gonna turn you to one place, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, one place I'd like you to go so we can see what these bodies are like. The whole chapter is about the resurrection, Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. There's lots of great information there, but we're gonna go to verse 51. Verse 51, Paul says, "'Behold, I tell you a mystery, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now we're going to use the same bodies. Jesus used his same body. That's why it wasn't in the tomb when they went to go get it. He was using it, right? You're going to use your same body, uh, it's going to be recognizable. You're going to maintain your identity. That's why they could say, Jesus could say, see my hand, see my side. It was the same body. But it's going to be completely refurbished and get a whole bunch of great upgrades. <laughs> the upgrades are in verse 42. So look up. We're going to look at four quick, four upgrades we're going to get. It says what's sown perishable will be raised imperishable. In other words, we're going to get a perfect body. That's the first thing about our resurrected body. It's going to be perfect. It's not gonna age, be diseased, or die. Forty three says it was sown and dishonored, it's gonna be raised in glory. That means we get a pretty body. Woohoo, pretty body. I'd like that. That'd be good. Hey, and if we don't know what pretty means, but have you seen the sunsets lately? You think God can make pretty? You betcha. Verse 43 says these bodies, it continues on. They were sown in weakness, they'll be raised in power. We're gonna get a productive body. Productive body, I like that. Never tired, never run down, never need sleep. Awesome. Verse 44 says it was sown a natural body, it's gonna be raised a spiritual one. That means we're gonna end up with a pure body. That's a body that always pleases the Lord and does what's right. So we're gonna come out of this thing with pretty, excuse me, Perfect, pretty, productive, and pure bodies. Perfect, pretty, productive, and pure bodies. Wow. I can't really describe what that's like. The only way I can kind of help us remember and understand this is to think about a caterpillar. Caterpillar is basically a worm, right? He's just like on the ground doing his thing. But at some point, he's motivated to crawl into this paper bag coffin. That's what the chrysalis always reminds me paper bag. He crawls into that paper bag coffin, tomb, and he basically dies in there. Until at some point, the call goes out and he busts out. And at that moment, he busts out as a butterfly with unparalleled beauty and unparalleled freedom that he never had before. That's what our resurrected bodies are gonna be like, ladies. Verse 17 continues. We'll be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The clouds seem to be always around. They take them away, they bring them back, they're gonna be here. But the word I wanna bring to your attention is that word meet. This word meet is like having a formal state dinner for an important person. That's what you should think of when you see this word for meet. In the ancient times, when an important person came to town, everyone rushed to town, they ran to come, and they would have this big celebration, and they'd escort this person into their town. There would be food, and dancing, and partying, and it would be all this big celebration. This wasn't, I stick my hand and say, hi, my name is Carlene, I'm meeting you. No, it was a totally different kind of meet. When you see the Lord, it's gonna be way more like, meeting with an important person, this is a party. Then Paul says some of the most important words that were ever written. After we get raptured, resurrected, which happens in an instant, it says, we will always be with the Lord. Every follower of Christ will be with him always. Where he goes, we go. And before he left us, in John 14, he described this moment, this moment, the rapture, like this. John 14, 1 and three, Jesus said, as you wait here, as you're living here on earth, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I go to prepare a place for you? I mean, that would just be mean. But if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's this moment. We have hope, right? We wanna anticipate this day and live like this is gonna happen for sure. Well, that's all well and good for Christians, you might say, but what about non-Christians? You're right. Passage doesn't mention non-Christians. Paul cannot give us this kind of hope for a non-Christian. They have chosen to live apart from Christ in this life, and they will live apart from him in the next one. They will not get the benefit of his righteousness. They will not get the benefit of his payment for their sin. Some of them have already gone before you, and they're already dead. And the grief that you feel over that, it's the worst grief ever. That is the worst grief ever, right there. (sighs) Let that horrible grief motivate you. That person lost their chance. But there are lots of people around you that are still here. There's a lot of people around here that still need to know the truth. Let the truth here that non-Christians will live apart from Christ forever compel you to love, care for, and beg these people as I will be doing yet again when I leave this place to get right with God. God has not closed up shop, we should not either. Now, our passage doesn't say it, but two verses from now and first thus it does, our next teaching will cover this phrase, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, we do not know when Jesus is coming back. Could be five minutes, could be five years, which means if we're supposed to anticipate our eternal home, we need to take our cues from people like the five wise virgins in Jesus' story. We always say them together, the 10 virgins, But there were only five that you want to be like. The five wise versions. They knew the groom was coming, so they prepared. They went out and they bought oil ahead of time and they took it where they were supposed to go to meet the bridegroom, and they watched. And sadly, all of them fell asleep. So they weren't actually awake when he came, which we want to be awake when he comes, but they weren't actually. But you know what happened when the cry went out and the bridegroom had come? those five wise virgins who had oil were ready for him. They were ready, they pour the oil and go, yes, I'm here. And of course you know the five foolish ones were not ready. Ladies, we are 2,000 years closer to this moment. We don't know when it is, but we're closer than Paul was. By 2,000 years, it's gotta be soon, sooner than it was for him at least. We need to anticipate that. And a great way for us to eagerly await and anticipate that is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. I won't make you turn there, but it's the one that says whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. That means dead or alive, you make it your aim to please him because we're all going to appear before him. So each one will receive what's to do. That's what's going down at the reception. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's when the books are open for Christians. And will we either rejoice that he came for us or we're going to shrink away in shame? as you eagerly await and anticipate his coming, make it your aim to please him now. Hmm. Well, there's one phrase left. Seven little words. But I think it's the key for achieving good grief. Because everyone needs a little help sometime. And verse 18 says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul is urging you to get the word out about the truth you've just learned and so much more. You're gonna have to help your friends and family members who face a painful loss to have hope, which means you're going to need to actively, point three, actively encourage the grieving. Actively encourage the grieving. There are grieving people all over, ladies. There are grieving people all over this room. I can see you. We need to help you. Ladies who are not grieving today, you need to help them. Like the four friends of the paralytic in Jesus' parable, not parable, it actually happened historically. These four friends each took a side of that stretcher and they walked their friend to see Jesus. And then when they got there, they were blocked. They'd already had the obstacle of getting there and carrying the guy. Now they're blocked, the door's blocked. So they rip a hole in the roof and they raise the guy up and they lower the guy down so that he gets some face time with Jesus, first face time. why they do that? Because they loved that guy. Now, Heather told us a while back that uh, we and the Thessalonians were doing well with loving each other. But remember, Paul's encouragement was to love more and more. If there was ever a time to love our sisters more and more, it's when they're grieving a lost Christian loved one. And I love this word encourage here. It means all the things you think it does, comfort, exhort, strengthen, all of that good stuff, but it also means to call to one side. Hmm. That's what it is to encourage, to call to one side. You know what that means? Your sister, who's grieving, needs you to come up beside her. Needs you to hang out with her. Need you to be with her. That's what will encourage her. Call to one side. But how do I start? I'm so scared, I I don't know what to do with grieving people. Don't ask me to do that. Give me a task, I can do it. But don't ask me to help a grieving person. Let me just tell you, no one in this room feels like that's their gift. No one goes, sign me up for that, because it's hard. We're afraid, we're afraid we're gonna say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, everybody's afraid. But some of us are so afraid that we're gonna do the wrong thing that we do almost nothing at all. And I can tell you that's far worse. It's way better to love someone and do it imperfectly than to have that person out there all on their own. You're not gonna do it perfectly. But I have tried to take a whole bunch of pieces and bring them all together and come up with five things that you can give friends who are grieving, okay? Five things you can give friends who are grieving. I'm gonna say them real fast and then I'm gonna slow down and elaborate, okay? The five things you can give a grieving friend is yourself, your words, your time, your stuff, your future. Give them yourself, your words, your time, your stuff, your future. But before you give them any of that, a big umbrella over the top is you got to prepare you because you're giving you, right? You better prepare. And you prepare, the umbrella over all five of them is you got to prepare in prayer. You got to start praying before you ever go and try to help these people. You got to pray. You got to pray for you. A bunch of things. Here's some things to pray for. You gotta pray for that friend. They get relief from their paralyzing pain because it is truly paralyzing. You gotta pray for them to have wisdom and strength in the logistics they're facing. They're taking phone calls and planning memorial services. Pray for them in that. You gotta pray for your friend to adjust to new life without their loved one sleeping next to them, celebrating days with them, having their stuff in the closet or down the hall. They're toys. You gotta pray for your friend if they have children that they would help their children to love and trust in the Lord because he is their only hope. I hope we've made that clear today. Christ is our only hope. That's what we give our kids. That's most important for her to give her kids. And pray for her as she's facing an uncertain future. As you pray for her, your love for her is going to grow and you're going to be better equipped to do all five things I'm going to tell you next. And of course, you got to pray for you. You got to say things at the right time in the right way. So better pray for you to do that. (sighs) I hope you had a quiet time that day. If you didn't, do it every day, because you never know. If you didn't, have a quiet time right then, even if it's 10 minutes. Get a passage of scripture and start chewing on it. You know the word meditate means basically to chew the cud. Take a passage and start chewing the cud on it. If you don't fill your tank, how can you possibly help anybody else? There's our have a quiet time every day moment. Okay, that's the umbrella. Now let's talk about the five, okay? The first one you give your your friend is yourself. The first thing you give your friend is yourself. Just go and be with them. Just sit with them and be present. Don't say a word, you don't have to say anything. Sit, listen, hold them, let them weep with you, on you. Sit there while they process this horrific thing that's just happened to them. Let them talk, do nothing but be there. This is what your friend needs most, is for you to just listen. I had a meeting with a gal the other day and my very wise husband said to me, you know, that lady just needs you to listen. That was the hardest thing he could possibly have told me. Go climb a mountain would have been easier for me, but okay. He's like, no, really. He's like, when you're sitting there and you're tempted to talk, think of my face right this minute, (laughs) telling you don't to talk. This is what she needs. She just needs you to be there. And you know, he was so right. Be there when she's overwhelmed and emotional and just sit next to her. Give her yourself. As time passes, your friend's gonna need your words. And the first words she needs to come out of your mouth is, I love you and I'm not going anywhere. Or something to that effect. Then the words that need to come out of your mouth are things to commiserate how ugly and horrible and horrific death is. This sucks, this is horrible. Be empathetic with your words. The next words that your friend needs to hear from you is their loved one's name. There's nothing sweeter to their ears than you speaking of their loved one. Share memories that you have. Talk about how you can't wait to see them and how you've missed them. I assume it goes without saying, but when someone is facing this kind of grief over a lost loved one, it's not time for you to be their new friend. We hear of a need, we hear of grief and we want to rush in and help them but we need to leave that up close and personal let me sit and talk with you to the people in her inner circle. If you're not in her inner circle then write her a card. Say a nice thing at the memorial to her. A nice brief thing at the memorial service and pray for her. That's a way that you can use your words for her. If you're in the inner circle, this is gonna sound totally like, what are you talking about? When I talk about your words, make your words few. Um, When we are thoughtless, and we just go blah, 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 that's when words come out that end up rattling around in her head in the middle of the night. And she starts to go, whoa, whoa, is that right? Should I wait? Proverbs says when words are multiplied, sin is unavoidable. Less is more. Pray for yourself to say the right things and be careful what you say. But she is going to need you to share more words as time goes on. There's no doubt about it. When it's time to share more words, make them heavy with the word of God. His word is always right. His word is always perfect. His word is edifying. Share his words more than your words. We don't care what your opinion is. We want to know his opinion. Share God's word with her a lot. Um, First, thus far, what we just did here is a great thing to remind your friend of. That's what Paul tells us to do with these words. Encourage someone with these words. It's great. Here's a couple others for you. Psalm 20, verse seven and eight. Lamentations 3, 22, and 23, and there's so many more. I would encourage you to find some new verses. We're always like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but you got a whole book, a whole book, a whole Bible. Find some new ones, keep finding new ones, put them on your phone, and send them to her. Text them to her, have something fresh to give her that she didn't just think of. That'd be great. But don't data-dub her. Just because you know 42 verses and you could, Restrain yourself, one at a time is all she needs, okay? You've given her all those things so far, yourself, your your words, it's time to give her your time. Your time. Logistically, she's overwhelmed with details. Survival is the name of the game. Her household still has to run even though this person has died. Depending on the person, you could ask them what they need. That might not work with some people. And even the most capable and like, woo, the people that can sink through all the chaos, uh, they don't know what they need, frankly. They don't even know what time it is. How can they possibly know what they need? Or they don't want to be a bother. So if you're in that inner circle, you need to assess the landscape and act. Just act. Don't ask her what she wants for lunch, bring it and set it in front of her. Don't ask her if she needs you to pick up her kids. It's 2.25, go pick up her kids. She needs a prescription, she needs dresses for the memorial, go get her some. Get some boots on the ground kind of support for her. Don't assume that someone else is doing it or she doesn't need it. Usually nothing could be further from the truth. Give her your time. Another way to encourage her is to give her your stuff. And I do mean stuff. This is gonna cost you, and it's gonna cost you in a tangible way. Most of us here have far more than we need. Use some of what you have to give to her generously. Like when you're at the store and you're buying those fresh flowers for your kitchen table that look so pretty, get some for her. Uh, You're going to get water at Costco, throw a couple extra in the cart. You're grabbing some apples for your family, get some more. You're at Krispy Kreme, you're getting a dozen donuts for your kid, buy a dozen for her and her kids. You're at Yogurtland, special woohoo! you got A's on your report card, awesome, or fours or whatever they are today. You go to the Krispy Kreme or Yogurtland and take hers with you to celebrate. Use your stuff to bless this family. When it's the holidays, grab a whole bunch of hot chocolates and have their whole family get in the van with you to drive around and look at Christmas lights. Buy her tickets to a special family program that you went with your family buy her tickets to go with hers. Give her something for her birthday. Remember her kids' birthdays. Take her a bake treat, grab her a plaque from the Compass Bookstore, get her a gift card to Boomers, treat her to lunch for no reason at all, but bless your sister with your stuff. Then we need to make sure that we tell our sister we're going to give them your future, your future. In the chaos of the early days, there are so many people around that many people make the work light. It's just true. There are people everywhere. It's too much sometimes. But when the chaos is over and the people stop calling and everyone goes home, that's when your sister needs you the most. As the months go by, you need to actively encourage your sister. When God puts them your heart, do something. Don't let yourself off the hook. You think of her in the middle of the night. You pray for her when you get up to go to the bathroom or something. Think of her, you do something for her. You pray for her. You text her, okay maybe not at three o'clock in the morning. You call her, you make an appointment with her. You go over there, you drop by. That prompting is from the Lord. Do something about it. Make sure she knows that she matters. Write her a card, send her a verse. Go the extra mile, don't drop the ball. Put reminders on your calendar for days that are important, that will be inevitable landmines in her life. Her anniversary, Mother's and Father's Day. Here's one you don't think of, Halloween. Do you know how excruciating Halloween is for someone who's lost the mom, dad, son, or daughter? Christmas, Thanksgiving, obvious, right? I hope it's obvious to you. How about the day that she lost her loved one? It's an important day, especially in the weeks leading up to it. Once the day is over, the next day seems to be like a relief. But the days marching up to it, everything comes back. Go back to the first day with her. Go and sit with her. Be present. Make an appointment. Let her talk and you just listen. Walk with your friend for the long haul and carry her load by giving her your future. They have a tradition in a, traditional um, Jewish households. Uh, there's a special way to help people who deal with pain and loss and grief, and that is called a shiva. Shiva means to means seven or sits of seven. When someone dies, this closest family members—son, daughter, mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife—they all rush in together um, to sit with the person who is grieving and they literally come to their house and sit for seven days. They don't want that person to be alone. They say that they sit with this person until the healing begins. And then something happens on the seventh day because they all get up, the grieving person and the whole family gets up and walks around the block. And the whole community joins in and follows after them. The message they're trying to send is this. You can begin to live again. We know you hurt and we hurt with you, but you can heal and we're here for you. Don't you love that image? Sit with your friend, walk with your friend, encourage your friend. Now we all know the story of Pinocchio, right? Pinocchio, that lonely old woodcarver Geppetto, he carved a puppet, a little wooden boy, His name was Geppetto, and he carved this little wooden boy that he called Pinocchio. And he longed and wished and hoped that Pinocchio would be a real boy one day. And then he decided to wish on a star, and pretty soon the Blue Fairy showed up and granted him his wish, and Pinocchio um, became alive. Yes, he was still a wooden boy, but the Blue Fairy removed the strings from his arms, and she cautioned him to stay away from evil and do good, remember? Later on, Pinocchio hears that Geppetto has been swallowed by a whale, so he goes off and he tries to rescue him, but in the rescue, which was successful, Pinocchio dies. He drowns, and he's washed up on shore, and Geppetto is brokenhearted. It's at this point that the blue fairy shows up again, and she says, awake, Pinocchio, awake, and he does. Only this time, he's transformed. He's a real boy. He sits up, he's rubbing his eyes, he glances over and he sees Geppetto there crying, weeping next to him and Pinocchio says, Father, why are you crying? And Geppetto, I love this line, he of course didn't know what happened. He said, because you're dead, Pinocchio. (laughs) Pinocchio answered, he says, no I'm not. See, look at me, I'm alive, I'm a real boy. And that's when Geppetto saw the truth. He thought Pinocchio was dead but really Pinocchio was whole. Pinocchio was real. Now Pinocchio had, real, had, had experienced some kind of living as a wooden boy, but nothing compared to being real. You and I, we live on this planet and we are alive, we are animated, but when we are transformed, when we have our resurrected bodies, it will be nothing like what we experience today. Because Jesus is coming back, because he's going to raise us up with all of our Christian loved ones, we need to have hope as we grieve. We need to anticipate that eternal home that we are going to, and we need to encourage our sisters who are grieving. Let's pray. Dear Father, we just want to tell you how grateful we are. First of all, as I think of this, I'm grateful for your word. I'm grateful that you transmitted this to us and that it wasn't just the Thessalonians that got this truth, that we got it even 2,000 years later. Thank you so much. This passage gives us so much hope. I thank you for those of us who've surrendered our lives to you, to follow you, that, we will never face dying and living apart from you. Thank you so much, Jesus. And I do pray, Lord, for especially my grieving sisters here who have lost someone close to them in particular. I pray for them that this message would have comforted them and that you would continue to help them grieve well. I pray for all of us to anticipate this day, this rapture that you're gonna catch us up with you and everyone else, and we would think of it and we would long for it and we would pray for it and we would act like it's gonna happen. And I do pray that we would follow through. Every one of us would follow through, even if we're not in someone's inner circle. Send a card, send a text, give someone a hug that we know is grieving. Help us to encourage those who have lost someone. I pray that we would love each other more and more in this way, in Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.